Hi, this is Donna, creator of The Diarist, and we have a special bonus episode. We are interviewing Rachel Diamond from We Are All Mad Here podcast. It's an amazing podcast about mental illness, and I suggest you check it out. It's really good. It was so good that it inspired us to contact Rachel and ask her if she would do an interview with us about mental illness in the 1950s and to talk about the diarist and some of the themes of women and mental illness that come up in the story. Before we get started with the interview, I'm going to play a clip from The Diarist Episode 8. In this clip, you will get to know a little bit about Margaret, um, the wife of the advertising executive who has mental illness and has been in and out of mental institutions. So enjoy. Did you ever love him? (laughs) I don't know if I should tell you the answer to this one, dearie. Mr. Hayes and I, we're two old gentlemen... But we can't share a smoke like a couple of civilized men. Oh, you're silly. He said you wouldn't care about... That's what I want to know. I feel terrible. You know, he's had me put away four times. My own doing, I assure you, but he has a plan. In the beyond, there's mother and father, and somewhere farther out... Out of all these solar systems, there is Dottie. I called her Dottie. So so what's next is our recorded interview with Beth Ricketson, myself, and Rachel Diamond. Enjoy. First of all, we love your show so much. Oh, thanks. Um, I've listened to so many of them. They're so well-researched, and um, I I love them. So I'm so excited to talk with you and... um, and uh, yeah, and then talk to you about our podcast and see how the um, the mental illness stuff kind of crosses over because our show deals a lot with mental illness in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, so we wanted to talk to you about that and also hear anything about your show too. So would you mind just uh, telling us about your show a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so my show is We're All Mad Here and it focuses on the history of mental illness, though I sometimes venture into the modern day. Um, And I look at the people and places and events that are related to mental illness and tell the stories of those people, places, and or events. Um, And I try to not focus so much on necessarily like famous people, even though those are very interesting. I like to bring real people on every now and then and kind of find uh, the lesser known uh, events and people and places um, to talk about. Do you do you sort of go after just sort of what comes across, what you come across, um, or do you look for certain stories about certain types of mental illness or diagnoses? Um, sometimes I'll do like a series, like I just did a series on CTE and like traumatic brain injuries. So sometimes it'll go along a theme, but uh, those I have to be super, super prepared for, which is sometimes hard to do. Usually it's just a one-off and sometimes it's whatever I feel like doing. And sometimes it's one that I've had ready for a while and it just feels like it's time to do it. How did you get into it? Into podcasting or into the topic? Well, both, I guess. Uh, I mean, podcasting, 
I had kind of wanted to do my own for a while. And like most people, I wanted to do a true crime one because I love true crime. But then I, then I figured, you know, there are enough of them that are done very well that I don't need to add mine to the stack. So I figured what, what do I enjoy learning about that isn't being covered? Um, and, and actually the thing that enabled me to actually start the podcast was getting a change in medication where I didn't really have the energy to do anything related to it. And then I got on this medication and kind of gave me the energy that I needed to start the podcast. But as far as like the topic, I always liked finding the little factoids, like the man who assassinated President Garfield was part of a cult and researching that. But I think that my interest in the mental health as a topic in mental health as a topic was sparked um, when I was studying abroad in London and I took this class called Madness and Medicine in Modern Britain. My teacher was really great and we really delved into all of the details and the way that mental health was treated in the 19th and 20th centuries. And then of course a few years later I got diagnosed with my very own mental illnesses so it got more of a, a personal feel there. Hey everybody, it's Donna. I'm going to take a quick break from our interview to play a short promo for Rachel Diamond's podcast called We're All Mad Here, and then we'll return to our interview. Hey podcast listeners, are you looking for something a little bit different? Then tune in to my podcast, We're All Mad Here. Join me, Rachel, as we talk about creepy facilities some pretty questionable cures, as well as checking up on some famous and not-so-famous people who have dealt with mental illness in their life. Informative, scary, and with a little bit of sarcasm, if you enjoy learning about the truly crazy parts of history, you're going to love We're All Mad Here. Episodes come out weekly, and I hope you'll join us. And now, back to our interview. I definitely am with you in terms of, like, I have kind of a passion for stuff in the past and just like the socio-historical context especially mm-hmm. women, you know like I think people today they don't really understand what it meant to have you know to for someone to be able to lock you up and throw yeah in. I mean that was literally what happened you know and um I have mental illness in my family my mom was very severely mentally ill and then I've struggled with different things too and I think just being a woman that that's why a lot of the stuff in my stories kind of deal with that because, Mm -hmm. you know, even today, I think we still have a lot of that. Like I know this therapist I have, you know, she's like more and more, all of these diagnoses are really linked to trauma, you know, and who experiences trauma more than women. Right. Like, Mm -hmm. so I think that's why I was, yeah. (laughs) Women of color. Yeah. yeah, I mean, um, so I, that was why I was really drawn to your podcast and and it's also really good. Since you've listened to the diarist. (laughs) Yes. Is there anything on the topic of mental illness that you have, that has grabbed you or that you've had questions about or that doesn't ring right or anything? It's really interesting that the the main character herself isn't, she's obviously, she's not a doctor, she's a secretary, um, you know, getting into the ad campaigns and stuff. So it's interesting that she's the one narrating, she's the only side that we see of this mental illness, I guess, because, you know, she does talk to uh, Richard, I guess, right, about it, but we haven't really gotten in depth yet so the only kind of the only version that we get is main characters i guess we do get kind of a glimpse into it with the the letters i guess which that moment totally freaked me out i was like in the middle of a target listening to that and it gave me chills 
but yeah, so I'm really excited to see more of Mrs. Hayes' story. I'm glad you said that because that's, that's what's coming up. Yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> like I said, I hadn't been able to find any audio dramas that I liked because a lot of them are sci-fi, which I'm not really into. Um, so, but yeah, I was really excited to find yours because, you know, it's historical and dramatic, which I like. When we first started putting the interview questions together, I had the whole synopsis with all the twists and turns mm -hmm. you can't give all the spoilers so we'll have to ask you questions about mental illness around the plot okay so some things i think i hope that people don't expect and it sort of links to that whole mental illness and um, mm -hmm. and also oppression of women during that time yeah um, so and i i think you know that margaret has sort of some fears about being institutionalized and i think it's already come out that she has been institutionalized yeah could you tell us something about what that would be like in the 50s? Like being institutionalized? Yeah. Um, I mean, the 50s in general, uh, psychiatry was kind of in vogue, but being institutionalized was not. That was still a huge embarrassment, and I think people would try to hide it and, you know, make up a story. Oh, she's gone on a trip, and, you know, she won't be back for a little bit. But also, in the 50s, psychiatry, as far as medicine, was really ramping up. So you had a mixture of these new pills or, you know, other treatments that were sort of being invented and discovered. And then you had the old treatments like hydrotherapy and insulin shock therapy. Um, I mean, ECT is still used today, but that was considered, you know, very dangerous and strange. It would have been like your chances of being quote unquote cured would be like a mixed bag because, you know, they might try hydrotherapy on you or they might try lithium or whatever. And depending on the person, depending on the case, it was really just a shot in the dark. And that's kind of scary. Because I know, um, like I wrote a story, which we may or may not do as a podcast, but it's a novel. And it was in the 40s. And it seems like in the 40s, maybe a lot scarier to be institutionalized because they didn't have the medication. So they were still doing lobotomy because they were yeah. doing lobotomies that much in the 50s. I think they were still happening in the 50s. I believe the last one that was done was in the early 60s. So they were still... So in the 50s, they were still doing them? They were still doing them. Um, I think the thing, though, they were still kind of limited because Dr. Freeman was the one who really, was really the only one who was doing them. So I think it really depended on where you were and if he got to your hospital or not. Can you talk about people who were, I guess more actually I have two questions and go back again to even though being institutionalized wasn't sort of in, in vogue obviously it was you know <clears throat> something to to hide in the family did that fear deter people from actually admitting their family their loved ones whoever um or was it still being used at that time as like you're sort of because I was I was actually just listening to one of your um your episodes today on the orphans in Canada. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, uh, how, you know, you were talking about the people who were unsightly and mm -hmm. sort of being able to be put away for just being a little too neurotic or just being a little too yeah. outspoken or whatever. Was that still sort of a common thing in the 50s? Or had it sort of yeah, people could definitely still be put away, namely women, um, for that kind of stuff. I th but I think it wasn't as uh, 
much of a knee-jerk reaction if someone had, I guess, a little bit of neurosis. Because when I was researching for this interview, I came across a source that said, like, being quote-unquote anxious in the 50s was in vogue the way that being depressed is in now, where it's cool to say you're depressed, even though the people who kind of say that generally don't have full-blown depression. It was kind of cool back in the 50s to be like, oh, my nerves. It showed that you were a real woman. So I don't think, you know, saying, oh, I have bad nerves would land you in an institution as much as it would have earlier in history. But I think once a woman kind of bordered on being an embarrassment or uh, unpredictable, that then they would have been institutionalized. And I think that's where the medication came in and really, I guess, helped women stay at home. You know, they would, it would kind of quiet them down and they could go have their little hissy fits, you know, off on the sidelines. You wouldn't have the embarrassment of institutionalization. Gosh, I wonder if, I wonder if film had a lot to do with that because you look at a lot of movies from the 40s and 50s and how women acted a lot of times they were this sort of yeah 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 Yeah. neurotic yeah yeah it's interesting but at the same time at that point you had like donna reed and uh june cleaver so you kind of had you know this perfect housewife that the american dream made you want to have and everyone expected to have yeah i think i think even if you were the cool kind of neurotic, you had to make sure that that was kept under control. It also seemed like, I think, and this you can confirm, it also seemed like it was kind of up to the people to construct whether or not you were sane. So like if you, like, for example, I mean, I don't think it's a big leap to say that this character is abusive. Like you don't totally see it yet because you're just seeing through Andrew's eyes. So I hope that's not a spoiler. That's not a spoiler. I mean, he's an asshole, right? Like, so, that's a professional (laughs) but like so he could decide I think do you you think that's right in the 50s like if you had total control over a woman's life you could decide if they I mean I think you can to some extent still do it I mean there's yeah if you can convince yeah there's involuntary uh commitment, I guess, still today. I think there are a lot more rules that you have to follow and a lot more proof that you have to give. But yeah, I think I think he's definitely the type to do that. I mean, I don't know if Margaret's commitments before were voluntary or involuntary. It seems maybe involuntary. Yeah, I think he he's definitely the type, especially because, you know, he's a businessman and Back then, you know, you brought people around to your house to meet your perfect wife and she cooked you a perfect dinner. And if you don't have that, then that's not good. So would you say that like rebellious, or I mean, rebellious woman would be pathologized during that period as well? I think so. Again, I don't think it was as bad as it was earlier um, because even though the 50s was very much, oh, perfect housewife. Um, I think women taking over men's jobs during World War II kind of showed that at least a little bit women could handle the stress of a man's job and, you know, kind of keep the country running while men were away. So I think that was proven a little bit more and it took a little bit of the stigma away from the working woman. But I think in the 50s, because the war was over and everyone wanted so badly to have that American dream, I feel like 
women may not have pushed as hard to get back into the workforce because it was like, well, that's over. Now it's the, the perfect 50s and we move on and this is what's expected of me. And I was, I was looking at the, the Milltown ads that you were talking about and like the descriptors that they use are very dismissively feminine. It's like anxious, overreact. Whereas, you know, the men get like, oh, your tension. Like it's very manly to have tension, but women are in distress. Yeah, it, it's very pointed. Like you certainly know the kind of woman that these meds are supposed to make you into. Yeah, um, I guess that's it. They're making you into because if you don't fit that caricature, like what happened like with gay with women who were gay back then? Like did they, um, did they pathologize like that? I mean, I didn't do research on that, so I can't really say uh, for I'm sure. Still not out there thinking what's outside of that image. Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen in like sources that I've encountered years ago, it seems like they were pathologized, but it also seems like a lot of them kept it under wraps. And um, I mean, with women, I think it was a little easier to, I guess, get away with being gay because women are allowed to be more intimate with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if two women walk around holding hands, you don't necessarily think back then that they were gay, but men can't get away with that. But yeah, people, I mean, we still have conversion therapy to this day. So I'm pretty sure that they used it back then. Would that be enough to institutionalize a person? I think it could be in some cases. Um, Again, it may have to do with the diagnosis they were given. Um, Uh, Wouldn't homosexuality be a diagnosis? Uh, I'm trying to remember from when I did the conversion therapy episode. It definitely was a diagnosis at some point. And yeah, I think it was only taken out in like the 70s. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it could have been a diagnosis. I know I had done some, this is a little off, well, sort of off topic, but I had done some research on, I don't know if I wrote you, but I wrote somebody. And actually, have you listened to Pretend Radio? Mm-mm. I'll send you a link to it. It's, this, it's a really awesome radio. It's like a, it's kind of like a true crime, but he take stories where people are pretending to be someone else so oh cool it's, it's really really well it's done a podcast, right? it's a podcast yeah, yeah. well he's going to do the story of my mother who oh. did a psychosurgery in the 70s and so i did a little research on that it's later than i mean the um the period is later than the the stuff that we're talking about now but i know there were a few campaigns in the early 70s to do that on people who were homosexual. Yeah. So, and I also know for like African-Americans, they were looking at doing psychosurgery too. So it was like a resurgence. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess basically any vulnerable population they get their hands on, they do whatever they want. Yeah, pretty much. I was, okay. I wanted to ask about Richard. So have you done an episode on, or I, we all, the actors and I always talk about this. Is he a sociopath? Oh, man. Um, I mean, I have a BFA, so I can't diagnose him. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. I I don't know him as well as you guys do. So right now, I would say no, but I'm sure I may change that as uh, as I hear more of the episodes. Okay, so we, because we've gone back and forth with that. You know, the whole idea of sociopath. We just don't know if he has a, a empathy yet, I guess. So I guess that's... And I think also, like, keeping in mind our bias that we have being alive now and not that or not at least adults then, you know? 
how men acted, how women acted was cultural in a yeah. way now may be seen as more uh, abusive even. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think so. That was his whole thing, right? Is to be this executive who's, mm-hmm. you know, so... How about domestic violence in the 50s? Um, so the question that you had written was, how was domestic violence dealt with in the 1950s? And all I wrote underneath it was, not at all. Uh, because it, it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't spoken about. And, you know, a man was supposed to have a firm hand. And if that involved slapping his wife, then he had to. I mean, if you look at, like, I Love Lucy, she was kind of the only whimsical woman on TV, and her husband regularly spanked her, and it was comedy. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, he, like, puts her over his knee, and he spanks her. And that's, like, the ha-ha-ha kind of end of an episode. And that was, like, oh, women, sometimes they just need a good slap on the butt. I, I mean, I guess maybe when I watched it, I was younger and I didn't, yeah. Well, and it's, it's like I said, they have the laugh track, but it's also like, it's the very, yeah, it, you know, he literally puts her over his knee and, oh, it's funny to see a grown woman across someone's knee as opposed to like a child. So yeah, it's presented in a funny way, but when you think about it, it's funny because it was okay yeah. to spank your wife when she was bad. Well, there was a, a commercial that I found because you know you always I'm sure you know this too always looking for public domain stuff for oh yeah yeah I'm, I'm doing that right now trying to find short stories that I can read oh my god we do that I mean this is like a full-time job right it's like finding. Yeah. but I found this radio show I think it was 40s or I think it was 50s actually and it was like I think it was like ask George and it's like embedded mm-hmm. in one of the episodes like in the background it's, it's an episode where she's kind of like call where margaret calls andrea and she's kind of crazy and there's yeah but in the background of that there was this ask george and it's like do you need your law he was like this retired investigator or something do you need your lawn mowed does your wife need a spanking ask do you have a crime that needs solving do you have a dog that needs walking do you have a wife that needs spanking let george do it now, three days have passed, and George sitting on like, his... Like, what, was it, what would it be like, you know, to be in a society where you're viewed that way? And, I mean, we know how they talk to women in the business. Yeah. Right? Just like yeah. the Mad Men thing. I mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, I was thinking about Mad Men when I was researching for this interview, because Betty eventually goes to therapy, and the therapist calls her husband and updates him after every session. So everything she says, he's told, which like, you know, as someone in therapy now just horrifies me, you know, what a breach of privacy. I think the, the way that women were viewed back then, you know, in the forties, they were allowed to be a little bit stronger because society didn't really have a choice. They had to let women run things, but women were, and to some degree still are seen as weaker creatures who are prone to our like nerve problems. And I think that's why back then and today women are medicated more quickly than men are um, because women are crazy and you know, whatever, you know, they, maybe they're feeling sad. So automatically let's put you on some Prozac or whatever, where it's like, no, she's just, she's just sad. Calm down. Right. 
Well, and it's so weird too, like to think of the context of where we are now, but then to also think we have the vestiges of that. You know, I was just doing this um, research for this, uh, it's like a sexual assault uh, initiative in San Francisco. And so I was like trying to um, find like evidence-based research because they're going to put this ballot measure up. And I was finding all this stuff and it was like these studies of police officers where they basically show that they're looking at rape investigation, like, you know, in general, not just San Francisco, but most police through the lens of the rape mythology. So it's like, mm -hmm. they're not passing these cases on to be prosecuted. They're in their mind thinking all the stuff that they actually said in the fifties, which is why were you drinking? You asked for it. It's your husband. It's not legitimate. And they find those themes are still there, even though, on the surface, our time and culture is, I guess, somewhat more feminist, but it's yeah. kind of creepy to think those things are still operating, you know? Oh, yeah. And I think that's, I think that's evident in, like, just for example, the Brock Turner case where, you know, the, the woman goes under Emily Doe. We don't know her name right. because she will be attacked probably and he gets off with what three months probation or whatever whatever happened to him but yeah you know in like you know there are cases where we're not sure what happened but that is not one of them like right. there were multiple witnesses saw it happening and he still got off um yeah that was stanford right and he yeah basically he basically just raped a woman it wasn't even a anything it was she, he took her behind a dumpster and raped her and yeah and then two two guys like going by saw it and stopped it oh. so you know it wasn't even he said she said like it was witnessed and he was like an athlete right yeah he was a star swimmer and i mean a, a lot of them are athletes but again it's not the usual he said she said this was right. witnessed and stopped Right. Um, but yeah, he was their, their star swimmer and his, his dad's famous uh, 20 minutes of action quote, he shouldn't be punished for 20 minutes of action. Right. Which uh -huh. is a very, a very toxic masculinity thing to say. Yeah. And it's just, I'm trying to imagine what it would be like. I think a lot of my personal stuff comes up in my writing, but like my mom, I did all, ended up doing all this research on my mom because she was very mentally ill. She underwent this surgery and she grew up in um, Georgia and that in and of itself. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah. She grew up in Georgia, which really made her crazy. But I ended up talking to a relative of mine and they were like, because I was like, what happened to her? She acts so, she doesn't have fit any, and it was this brain injury is what happened. Yeah. But then I found out when she was like 15, so it was like 1950s, she was out with some friends and she was sitting on the hood of a car and they backed the car out and she fell and she was unconscious for several hours. Wow. And said when she woke up, she was never the same again. So then I think, what was it like going through the 50s with traumatic brain injury and no inhibitions? You know, I, I think that's maybe what comes up in my writing is like, you are incapable of fitting this expectation and norm. Yeah. You know? So what is, it's scary to be like, what is the world like? And I guess if someone acted like that now, but... It just, it just kind of freaks me out to think, like, you had no wiggle room, you know, as a yeah. woman. Yeah, I think today, like, if we see a kid or an adult kind of acting out of the norm in public, you know, I think most of us are able to step back and go, maybe this isn't a misbehaving person. Maybe they have some sort of condition. But back then, 
you know, even if they did give thought to maybe there, it's a condition, it would be, oh, she's crazy. Right. And that's what's going on. And why is she out in public? Yeah, like you said, there was no wiggle room. And because institutionalization was such an okay thing. Right. I think that's why people still did it so often. Back then, it was more of a, yeah, that's what you need to do, you know? I wish they weren't an embarrassment to you, but if they are, you gotta lock them up. Right. And they, um, yeah, and they didn't really, they didn't know too much about trauma back then, it doesn't seem. No, I mean, I, like I said, I just did a series on traumatic brain injuries, and we still don't know anything. You know, they're, they're doing more research now, and they have been, like, I guess since the late 90s, early 2000s, but the only way to diagnose some of this stuff is post-mortem. Oh, that's right. I remember you saying that on the show. Like, there's a... Yeah, the CTE. Yeah. You cannot be diagnosed with that until you're dead. You know, they can can kind of say, you know, you have a traumatic brain injury, but they won't know whether it's actually CTE or not until they look at your brain. No no, uh, scans, no x-rays, no... No, because it it doesn't show up. Like, they... Some stuff does show up, but they can be like, oh, you have your brain, I can see some of the light, the areas that are lit up show that you are depressed, or I can see that you're manic. But that doesn't mean you have CTE. So CTE just doesn't show up on scans, so they can't tell. Hopefully that will change in the future. But as of now, yeah, you can't diagnose it when someone is alive. I think 1950s, was that still like Freudian? Yeah, I think people were still kind of revolving around that. Around that. If I remember correctly, my BA in psychology. Um, I think the humanist movement was starting to come in right at like the end of the fifties. Oh, okay. um, and it, but it was still a very much a fringe kind of thing. I mean, um, yeah. So it was, it was moving out of. Psych- he apparently died in 1939 of a drug overdose. Oh, Freud did. Yeah. Oh wow. Well, and he's like, I always think because I have a BA in psychology too. He, the whole abandonment of. Uh, the sexual abuse stuff was like, you know, that whole thing where he, right? Like yeah. he was looking at all these women and saying that it was the root of this was being abused, sexually abused. And then he, he yeah. then he took it back and said, no, that's not yeah. what. Yeah. Which makes yeah. it worse. It makes it worse, you know? Yeah. And he did kind of the same thing with gayness where he like, you know, there was a mother who wrote him and was like, I'm super worried. Like my son is gay. And he wrote to her, like, it's not a big deal. Like live and let live. But in reality, in his treatment, he was not encouraging of someone being gay. He's like weird complex, you know, like the mixer. Yeah. Now a quick break. I want to play for you a clip from a talk show from the 1950s called Leave It to the Girls. And a panel of three celebrity women answer questions from viewers. And there's one man on the panel who responds to the questions from a male perspective. And then we'll return to our interview with Rachel Diamond from We're All Mad Here. Now here's a letter from uh, Mrs. Harry Sweeney of Bayside, Long Island, who writes, I once heard a big businessman say, I wouldn't hire a homely girl. Do you think this is the usual male attitude, and if so, why? I'll repeat that, I wouldn't hire a homely girl. Oh, yes, George. I can't even blow it loud enough. <laughs> You're very weak on that horn. Uh, it's my own impression that, that homely girls are much better secretaries because they put their mind on their work and don't uh, primp and so forth. Uh-huh. Very 
George, knowing that you are a big executive at Life magazine, I know you have that problem. Uh, what do you say, Florence? I think Mr. Fraser is crazy. Homely girls are not better secretaries necessarily, but they don't have men breathing down their neck when they're trying to take dictation like a pretty girl does. <laughs> and now, back to our interview. So, Milltown, what, do you know what that was? I actually didn't know until I saw it in your questions, and then I did research on it. I didn't know either. Like, I saw it, I'm like, is it a tranquilizer? Is it a... It was... It was marketed as a tranquilizer, but in the 60s, they took it off of the tranquilizer list because it was considered a sedative. I don't know where the line is between tranquilizers and sedatives. I thought they were synonymous. You know, that was the problem with the Milltown stuff is they started giving it to people before they really knew what it was. And so they found out that it like affected your brain stem instead of your brain. And it was very easy to overdose on it. If you took too much of it, it could, you know, you shouldn't be driving. Again, I think there's, there's a Mad Men scene where Betty's driving and then her hands go numb and she can't steer a car. Right, I've seen that. And everyone's like, your hands aren't numb, like, shut up, you're crazy. Yes, it was super easy to overdose on it. And, you know, they, they found out later that, you know, it was advertised partly to be taken to make pregnancy easier. And they found out later that not only does it increase the risk of birth defects, but if you're taking it while you're breastfeeding, it goes through your breast milk and affects the baby. I don't know how. It didn't really go into detail. But yeah, it was, they found out a lot of freaky stuff. And I think I have, uh, in December 1967, it was placed under abuse control by the FDA because a third of the prescriptions that were written were for, you know, tranquilizers and stuff like that. And it was just being abused like crazy. And the withdrawal was not pretty. It was like seizures and hallucinations. Um, it's, it's scary that, you know, they didn't really know what it did. And they were just like, here, take this. It makes you not cry as much. Well, and it's funny because I, when I wrote the Milltown stuff in the, in the movie, see, it's becoming a movie and I don't even know, in the story, in the podcast, I was basing it on like um, uh, Valium. I, I mean, I didn't really know what it was and I didn't yeah that much. Because I know that Valium has pretty bad um, withdrawal and very addictive or, you know, habituating. But it sounds like Milltown was worse. It sounds like, it sounds like you got hooked on it and then... Yeah, the problem with Milltown was that it was easy to get hooked on it. And like a lot of other drugs that are easy to get hooked on, in order to get the same effect, you have to start taking more and more and more you know, that's why the overdoses were happening. And it doesn't seem like a lot of people died from overdosing, but you know, overdosing is never fun. But yeah, so people got super addicted to it. And then, you know, I'm not sure if they ever tapered people off of it in order to get them off or if they were just like, stop taking it, which especially if it's for women, it worse. Said, stop taking it. Yeah. And you know, the doctor just symptoms, they're probably like, it's all in your head. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, she starts having seizures and it's like, well, off to the institution you go. We hate epileptic people. <laughs> I know. What was with that? What a bother, what a bother you all are. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that's awesome. Thank you so much. And we'll let you know as soon as we uh, listen to it and see how it goes. Yes, please do. All right. Thanks. This is really fun. Thank, Thank you, you so Rachel. much. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to our interview with Rachel Diamond. You can find her podcast at We're All Mad Here on iTunes. If you get a chance, give us a five-star review for The Diarist on iTunes as well. 
You can also visit our Patreon page where we have special bonus content for subscribers. Your support really helps us keep our show going. Thank you again for listening. And now I'll leave you with a clip from The Diarist, Episode 8. The morning after Coney Island, my entire body was on fire. It seemed I had a terrible sunburn. This felt like an existential change. I didn't mind. I was growing to like it. At least I felt something. The pain seemed a testament to my strength, my existence.